Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Shankelberg. And this is Chris Jackson. And Fred was talking about a question about an extreme aging or testing problem. Somebody asked a question about electronics, and it was basically... Um, and it wasn't from a museum. It was some other organization is kind of, I don't have a whole lot of details, but you know, what do we need to, is it possible for a LED, for example, or a CMOS chip memory chip, for example, as PN junctions, basically, can we put those on the shelf and store them, you know, and oxygen-free environment, steady temperature, that kind of stuff, uh, you know, basically in a vault underground someplace um, for 200 plus years, and would it still work? And he said, we're not finding anything where people do shelf life studies at those durations. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's kind of, you know, most electronics hasn't even been around for 100 years (laughs) of any form whatsoever, even the old analog stuff. And most products are made for, you know, single use, five years, 10 years, maybe 20 years. Uh, I don't know. What's the spacecraft Voyager? It's been out there for like almost 40 years or something like that. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, It's still working. And one of the reasons it's still working is it's quite simple. Yeah. Compared to what they're doing now. Yeah. But it's, I mean, that would be probably our best study of, uh, um, but I'm sure it's shielded to some extent from from, cause, from just basic radiation. Otherwise, I think it would probably fail pretty quick. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a beautifully simply des- simple design. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's easy to make things hard. It's hard to make things easy. All right. Well, here's the dilemma is how do you take a, uh, a, say, a projector or a laptop computer off the shelf today you know, and you store it under on controlled environmental conditions to, to what you can control, and would it work? And, <laughs> you know, my first thought is, unless it was made in a clean room, it's going to be covered in bacteria, and then you take away the oxygen, and then the, the bacteria that loves to live in an oxygen-free environment, anaerobic stuff, is going to eat everything that it can digest, and that includes polymers, <laughs> They will break those down and eat them. And it might take them a long time to do it uh, unless you can actually get rid of them all and then don't touch it again. Or, you know, it's like super clean room things to get bacteria off of stuff. Or if you put a fingerprint on it, not even you, if it's in manufacturing, somebody sneezed. Now you got contaminants that some of which can uh, create corrosion without oxygen. Or with voltage, you know, it just takes a long time. And uh, so that I, my head started reeling of, well, what are the failure mechanisms we just ignore now because of their time scale? And that when you go an order of magnitude longer, become an issue. So why do they need to know the shelf life out to 250 years? I don't know. Was, the one sentence was, well, we want... The, the device the the media that we're storing we want to have a way to play it you know so that they could and I'm thinking what are they going to plug it into 
It's making the assumption that you still got power outlets. You know, what do you do with this pointy thing on the end of this cable? Um, it, you know, my first thought was modern day off the shelf, go down to Best Buy and buy something and stick it in a bag is probably just not going to work. Not because it itself, even if you assume all the electronics still work, right? That the capacitors didn't dry out, that the polymers didn't diffuse away, the PN junctions didn't lose their uh, their difference in holes and active regions, and you know it diffused out, or dielectrics didn't uh, erode uh, and flake off. Um, uh, even with very, very, very small thermal uh, differences, that cracking and separation can occur. Uh, adhesives will, you know, fail, become brittle. Um, yeah, it would be faster if you stick them out in the sun in you know an oxygen rich environment with lots of seawater. But but it, I'm I'm thinking there's a whole pile of stuff that happens to silicon that just takes a while to happen. And I don't know the timescales of which you know they do a lot of testing where it's high temperature and high current densities and all this other stuff to excite these things. But what I don't know is I don't know enough about these different failure mechanisms that we commonly address at normal temperatures. Is this time scale in the order of decades or is it an order of centuries or an order of millennia? I don't know how to, which ones apply, which, because there are some failure mechanisms that only occur once you get the act, the enough energy into the system, whether it's temperature current or stress or whatever for it to start. Right. right, but there's some that, like diffusion, will occur even at very low temperatures. It's just slower. Right, it's it's, uh, it's it's never an on-off valve. It's just a flow rate valve. Right. So part of it is. So one of my thoughts was, what are the latent defects, like uh, ESD, for example? You could take a perfectly good one. It's working in the process of packaging it up. Somebody doesn't pay attention to ESD and they zap it and they put it away instead. And, and they won't find out until they try. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, then I said, well, there's a whole class there. Then there's a whole class of just physics and chemistry that will occur. And, and, I, and that's the part I'm not finding a whole bunch of any information on it and I need to dig more into it. But then there's a whole realm of if you're worried about just the CMOS PN junction, what about the capacitors? <laughs> All those other components, you know, there's a lot of other places that things can fail. And then beyond that is, you know, the polymer and the structure, the circuit board, all of these pieces, how long can they last? And then do you have a system to actually power it? You know, are we still going to be using 120 volt AC power outlets or mm-hmm. you know, is that even going to be available? And then you need to have a generator or something to create power that you can do it or instructions out of it. Well, how about what, instead of having one device, get another device that uses a completely different technology, you know? So have two groups of things you don't know about or better yet, have a whole set of specifications on how to build your own. Right. You know, to do the same function, but they can figure out a function, or a way to do it. And they're like, what's the right way to approach this kind of question when, 
when they're starting with, well, how do we take an off the shelf thing and figure out whether it'll work 250 years from now or 500 years from now? You're like, uh, <laughs> I'm better at fight figuring out if it'll still work in 10 years, but I've never thought about over a hundred years. I, I, I remember seeing some probabilistic risk assessments for nuclear power plants where certain failure modes, if you looked at the, uh, the, the frequency curve, so for all intents and purposes, a bell curve describing the likely frequency at which the failure modes were going to occur based on the probabilistic risk analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the tails were exceeded 14 billion years, which is uh, older than the universe. And so, <laughs> so it's just um, it's just interesting that as uh, I've seen plenty of you know, detailed analyses, and we, we, we always espouse detailed analyses. You always espouse using your corporate knowledge. And if you've got expert judgment there, use it. If you've got test data from similar systems, use it. If you don't know, test yourself and then use that information. We're a big fan of using information, no matter where it comes from, as long as, as, long as it's clean, so to speak. Yeah. Um, pe uh, incomplete doesn't make it dirty. But then you see scenarios where you go, okay, how the hell can you with any level of confidence suggest that a failure mode, a nuclear power plant is going to occur once every universe, you know, <laughs> universe lifespan. And we have had multiple nuclear power plant accidents in the relatively short time frame they've been a thing. Yep. And then it's funny listening to people say, oh, that doesn't count because, you know, the analysis is based on these premises and assumptions. And they go, you know what, y your report is actually every reliability report or every probabilistic risk analysis, it has to be useful, which means that there aren't caveats, that there aren't assumptions, or the assumptions are you know, transparently understood and understandable. But, um, if you, you know, I suppose, but going back to the problem at hand, we need to have <laughs> some sort of test that allows us to look at whether a certain thing's going to be working 250 years from now. The one thing that's going, that for me, that for me, I should say, is going in the favour of the listener who's asking this question is that their component or system is a lot simpler than a nuclear power plant, which is a good thing. Yeah. Um, that means you, you're uh, able to do, you're able to model it in a way that you can extrapolate beyond typical human experience with some confidence well that's the well there that's the rub though chris is you just exposing it to high temperature which is doesn't even work to give you a reasonable estimate out to 10 years if you've got multiple failure mechanisms right, right? so that's the first part is what if we're going to set up a test or we're going to look for research or studies or stuff is vast majority don't really care about after a lot of them, frankly, don't care much after you get it off the production line, but you know, out to 10 years or 20 years, it's kind of like, and that's active, you know, mm -hmm. light up the light bulb and you get 2000 hours and Oh, okay, that's good. But how long can you keep that incandescent bulb on the, on the shelf before it fails? You know, and there's some that you take out of the box and plug in and it doesn't work. And that could be a latent defect. It could have been damaged in transit. I mean, there's all kinds of scenarios where um, just on the shelf it fails. And that's 
the part I'm struggling with is is interpreting. You know, it does um, hot carrier injunction. I think actually needs current to actually occur, whereas mm-hmm. whole depletion um, or delamination or you know if the passivation layer. Uh, is not perfectly matched to the substrate, even small variations over time will separate it, I think. You know, and it's kind of digging through which of these things, which of these failure mechanisms that we have models for, that we have, you know, physics of failure understanding for it, and this, that, and the other thing, are relevant when we go to very low stress. That's the part I'm struggling with. Is and But it's also, what do you look for? You know, do the mastodons come back and then they stomp through your, your warehouse, <laughs> you know, um, that would be considered for a, a nuclear power plant, I imagine. But I, for electronics, I'm trying to think through the, the just tons of different ways they fail and that we pay attention to in the design and manufacturing of these things. I mean, if there's any impurities at all in those silicon, in those junctions, will that in and of itself cause decay of its ability to perform as a, as a junction? Well, I'm talking to a client who's, who's sort of dealing with this problem in terms of accelerating testing for, um, uh, for a, a, a system which involves very precise laser mm-hmm. and amongst a bunch of other things that deal with the information generated by said laser. Um, and it's it's a very sophisticated piece of kit, but on one level, but on the other level, it's it's uh, it, it's it's very simple. Um, and you talked about imperfections, and, and the problem. I mean, we were reviewing vendor data where they essentially said, "Oh, these first three percent of failure data points under accelerated testing, they they clearly don't fit the rest of the data, so that's infant mortality. So they don't count." You know, I think we've had this conversation many times. In mm-hmm. fact, they're the only ones that do count because usually when your system reliability drops below 90%, it's done. It's no longer useful or feasible to keep you to keep having or right. keep using. And so if you've got hundreds of components, then uh, then they need to have reliabilities that exceed 99% before the system starts becoming uh, obsolete. From a from a supportability perspective, which means that virtually every failure you you're going to observe uh, that matters, if failure is driven by electronic componentry, is something that is based on this thing called infant mortality. And the other problem with um, uh, with electro- electronic components is that when we use the word infant mortality or wherein, we often um, simply jump to our oh, manufacturing defect or assembly error. But manufacturing electronic components is is damn hard. Mm-hmm. Even if you have the the most perfect manufacturing scenarios, so many of these uh, components are based on essentially what are hoped to be very pure crystal structures, yeah, and which they're not. Every, <laughs> which they're not. No, exactly right. Ideally, you want to have a single grain for many of these applications, and they're manufacturing uh, processes getting better and better each day at making those grains bigger and bigger and bigger, still not going to have a single grain for every single component you, you you manufacture, which means that even best practice, you're going to have a subset which have more 
defects than others. And so not only do you want to accelerate, but you actually want to know what sort of part of the failure spectrum you are accelerating. So with this client in particular, we're just advocating, we don't, we actually dis- disregard the, the large body of data that shows, let's just call it typical end of life wear out. Only failures you're interested in are these seemingly small, insignificant, less than 5% of failures, which have their own failure characteristics at the very start. They have their own, it's actually better to describe them as early wear out because this doesn't have that decreasing curve. There's such simple components that when you have infant mortality for such simple components, you tend to see what appears to be early wear out for a subset of, of components versus that bathtub curve. Um, that's a whole nother podcast right mm-hmm. there, I believe. But, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's what you need to focus on. So far from um, being able to extrapolate based on, let's call it the perfect steady state design intent, um, state of play, you actually often really need to focus on how those imperfections are on your day because they're the ones that drive the reliability metrics that ma- that matter. Yeah, yeah, and I've heard that that complaint um, actually from Kirk. He's he's like, you know, if you can make one that works, it electronics will probably keep working for the period of time you're interested in. It's and if you ignore all the early defects, you kind of combination pissing off your customers and and you're uh, ignoring the parts of the process that you know it says well but all these prediction methods and all this accelerated testing and all these physics of failure models and stuff they all focus on the end of life and kirk's like who cares (laughs) it's like you know if you can't transport it where it still works when it gets there it really doesn't matter it's not going to get to end of life you know and you can't just ignore that stuff and i i've run into clients like that it's always you know that happens and we don't have to worry about it yeah it's 10 percent of your product it doesn't make it i had one that was 50 percent, and like yeah yeah we just have to send another one it's like why don't you pay attention to that yeah but that's kind of the i mean i the 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 dilemma I'm struggling with is, is that, you know, normally when I sit down to do an accelerated test of any kind, it's, well, what time period are you looking for? Is it early life type stuff? Is Are we looking at doing that? Is Are we looking at trying to expose what's going to fail or is to survive transportation? Does it do this or that? You know, and then they say, well, we got all that under control or we think we got it. We need to know if it'll last the five years of our warranty or not. Are we financially too exposed or not? What's the likelihood? And like, okay. You have a good rationale behind it, all right? Now, what's likely to fail? What's that's usually my first step is what? What's the fault tree look like, and what's the most? What's your dominant failure mechanism or handful of mechanisms? Because it's near impossible to. Well, I'd say it's impossible to select a way to test it if you don't know what the mechanism is. Right. Especially two hundred fifty years from now, when the mechanisms might change or be something we haven't studied. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that part. It was, you know, it's I I'm starting with the premise of what is it that we do know that you know if there's I, I'm thinking of uh, uh, tin whiskers. They don't take anything yeah. to to occur, and as far as I know, we've learned a lot about that. If you put tin plate tin on a surface and then it's formed or bent or something like that, that that built-in stress of that deformation 
is, and then you can't cure it out. You can't burn it out or anything else. You can't relieve that stress in any meaningful way. That's one theory is what causes them to occur. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, they can replicate it. So this, they, last I heard was that they, we think we know that that's what causes it to occur. But what other phenomena, you know, will grow out of all of these? Because so many, th if you look inside an electronics box, it's, there's a lot of bent stuff. There's a lot of surfaces matching. There's a lot of, you know, uh, all kinds of different phenomena that are under some form of strain or mm -hmm. stress. What's the right word? Is it strain or stress? Is it when there, there's a tension well, between two things. Or st that stress, stress induces, uh, strain is like the physical change. Okay. Stress is the actual you know, pressure. Okay. So the, I'll use pressure. There's, there's this, in general, when you get down to it, the second law of thermodynamics doesn't like that kind of state and says, we're going to relieve that pressure. We're going to reduce that stress. And that sometimes it's diffusion. Sometimes it's cracking. Sometimes it's whatever. And that's the stuff I'm thinking is probably going to turn this electronics box into a pile of dust is just the basics of second law of thermodynamics. Absolutely. Um, it's uh, it, it really is a challenging, challenging scenario. It's 250 years. That's a long time. Um, but, uh, and I'm guessing they haven't come to you with that. Here are the things that are going to keep us up at night. No. Well, I mean, it's the first one was we do, should we put an extra light bulb in there with it? You know, do a backup for the things we think are going to fail. It's like, well, if you thought about the capacitors, <laughs> you know, if this is a, you know, power supply, it's got to kick out a bunch of current. It's probably got electrolytic ca capacitors in there. And we know that shelf life of those things is on the order of 15 to 30 years. Just, right. You know, so I'd worry more about those because we know those don't last. And well, we get one that uses solid state ones. All right. Well, polymer based ones, you know, yeah, they're a little better, but they still have the same mechanism where that dielectric fails. I, and I also think, you know, like this weekend, I, there is here in California or in the news this morning when I was looking through it, they were saying that uh, some parts of North America would be able to see the northern lights this weekend because of solar flare activity like a week ago or something like that. There's going to be a kind of the conditions are right to see the, is it Arroyo Borealis? Something like that. I think it's the northern yeah. lights. Um, you probably have a better chance of seeing them than I do. Maybe, yeah. In, in, in the southern hemisphere, it's Aurora, Aurora Australis. Australis. Um, Where'd that name come from? What's the, what's the big Australis country down there? <laughs> well, that's um, <laughs> it, it, Australis essentially means south. So Australia means southern land. Oh, right. That's where that. you see this. There you go. So that's where you hear a lot of uh, Australopithecus and Australis in Australia. It, it tends to refer to things from the south. Okay. I had no idea. That's cool. Um, but solar radiation, you know, and we know that neutrinos are very difficult to detect, much less cause anything to occur, but they do on occasion. They bump into something and go, ah, you go left now, I'm going right. And you can, we can detect those. There's a whole range of other radiation that has amazing penetration powers. Um, and it's very rare, 
that it causes damage. Yet we know from electronics that if you're in Denver, you have a much higher probability of getting a, a memory uh, faults because of, uh, I'm trying to remember if it's neutron or some other form of radiation can wipe out four cells in one shot. And we're, you know, folks are figuring out how to recover from those. Um, they can do one cell easy, but when you get four, it gets real tricky. Um, and that doesn't take, it, it just takes shielding, but even the best of shielding doesn't protect against the ones that are more rare <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, can cause damage. I, I, that's where my thought process about, oh, there's lots of ways things can fail is now it's just wide open. If you give me a hundred years to work on it, there's, uh, there's probably an order of magnitude, more ways of things can fail. Um, so I'm like, hmm, okay, <laughs> this is a challenge. Yeah. It's, uh, so what are you going to do? <laughs> well, my, like the very first test I did is, you know, I'll take a couple hundred of these devices and go to Northern Italy and watch them for the next 150, 200 years and see if I can get a right. good estimate for them. In some sort of um, vineyard, no doubt. Oh, yeah, nearby. It's got to be. That's right. you know, the perfect storage yeah. conditions. I mean, we can store wine for 100 years. We can store, you know, maybe that's the trick. Just store it in a big barrel of brandy, you know. That's actually, a, I mean, we did, we got there completely fortuitously, but that's, wine's not a bad analogy or, or, or proxy for some of the things we're talking about, because how do we know how to store wine? Because we know how it goes bad. Mm-hmm. And so you have all sorts of wine bottles which need to be stored the right way up or upside down or or, or, or rotated every every year or so, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the winemakers know how that wine can go bad. It's actually a great example of, you know, you, you can you can uh, hand the problem off as much as you want, but it wasn't as if there was a laboratory who got who who back in the in you know, Renaissance Europe, there was no wine laboratories there trying to do tests to work out you know statistically what's how how do we characterize how wines degrade over time no the winemaker said well if you do this it's going to go bad so let's not do that yeah. <laughs> and all of a yeah. sudden they worked out how to have, store wine for a long period of time it comes back to dare i say it, the designers so to speak mm-hmm. the winemakers to in a way design the wine and they have to know how to make great wine which means they also know how it goes bad yeah i guess it comes down to what could go wrong well that's it starts with just brainstorming it and and thinking beyond the current day focus on what will kill it in five years it's what will make it go bad uh, over the longer term um so anyway it, it's been an interesting i've been puzzling over this for a couple of weeks now it seems like and i'm like it's still not any closer. Every time I start looking into it, it just explodes into, well, there's a whole pile of possibilities here. And then I start digging into the technical papers and they're like, okay, I have no idea what they're talking about here. It's, you know, at the interface of the apixel and epixel layers and it's, you know, coated <laughs> with this, you know, exotic chemical and, and etched with this. And I'm like, what, what component is this even on? <laughs> 
So, so it goes, you know, and some of them are, are papers as they develop the processes to make things. And he says, well, if you don't pay attention to these details, then you're going to create problems right off the bat. So you got to deal with that. And so it's been designed out right from the start. And others are latent defects. And I'm like, hmm, is that meaningful or not? What's that? So this, the thought process goes on. It's been an interesting diversion here for my summer reading, I guess, um, of, uh, figuring this one out. So maybe that's the title is what could go wrong. So anyway, I know I'm not any closer than where I was, but a couple of ideas, a couple of thoughts there, and maybe a glass of wine this afternoon will help sort out what the right move here is. Well, I think the conclusion is wine is always good. (laughs) One helps. (laughs) What else? Yeah. It'll work. All right. Well, um, you know, I, I I know I've talked about this on an earlier podcast and, and I'm still kind of playing with it. So I'm looking for some insights or ideas or pointers of the, the perfect paper. Somebody, you know, took a, a wine barrel and aged it for 200 years and how did it go? Um, we'll, we'll go with that. You know, head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. You can get in touch with us. Uh, Chris and I and the other hosts of the show are available through LinkedIn and our about pages. Lots of ways to get in touch with us. And some questions just puzzle the daylights out of me anyway. So uh, if you got one like that, you know, send it on over. I, keep the diversions going for me. That'd be cool. Um, but with that, I think Chris will... We'll um, have to come back in a couple hundred years to see if this laptop still works. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'll was aged. That's right. We'll, we'll see how it does. All right. Well, thanks much, Chris. Talk to you later. Have one, Fred. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.